Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating on whatever service you use to download your favorite podcast, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. We really do appreciate it and definitely encourages us to bring you new episodes as frequently as possible. Today on the podcast is a former PA on the hit ABC TV series, Dharma and Greg. He was also arrested in 2011 during an Occupy Los Angeles protest. Oh yeah, and he's also a writer and executive producer on Family Guy. Uh, please welcome Patrick Megan. Thanks for coming on, Patrick. Kevin, thank you for having me. Um, so before we get started in all the writing stuff, sure, let's talk about Occupy Los Angeles. Okay, yeah, because uh, we—you're the first. Uh, I wouldn't. Arrestee? Yeah, arrestee. Uh, that we've had on the show, so right. I, you know, I this love... may become a true crime podcast before you're done. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This will be serial. Uh, <laughs> so, how and when? Well, obviously, when is 2011? But right. how did this happen? Well, uh, you know, obviously, Occupy Wall Street was going on, sure. and it was, uh, and it had uh, various sort of branches where there were human beings who felt like the government should be responsive to regular human beings, and maybe not necessarily quite so much to billionaires. And uh, I happened to be one of those people, and so I felt like it was my job to just sort of be one of the folks who was willing to participate in it, and um, I uh, uh, would go there sometimes, and um, I think we all knew that the arrest was coming at some point. That's part of what civil disobedience is, is, you, you know, you're you're going to get arrested, and, you know, we participated in arrest training so that we could be arrested nonviolently and such, and, um, and then when uh, the day came down, I made sure that I was at the encampment and uh, was one of... I forget exactly how it may have been a couple hundred folks who got arrested and I was one of them spent a couple days in jail and I'm okay now you know I uh, learned how to make a shiv I guess <laughs> is it uh, uh, as as we see in the movies was it pepper spray and dogs barking and the water cannons there were not dogs no. barking there wasn't I don't recall there being pepper spray so what I specifically remember so they like we we were sitting uh, basically Indian style in a circle, in actually concentric circles, and we were waiting to be arrested. And then when the SWAT teams came in, they were wearing like riot gear, like we were going to be warring against them, which was, you know, not the point. The point was to submit ourselves to arrest. Um, but what uh, some of the folks uh, decided they wanted to do, some of the arrestees, was just sort of to keep their arms linked together, to not sort of, uh, you know, submit docilely to the arrest. And so sitting Indian style, what uh, the cops would do to get folks to unlink their arms is they would take one foot and they would twist it as far, say, clockwise as they possibly could mm. and then stomp down on that foot with one foot uh, of theirs. And then they would take the other arrestee's foot and twist it as far as they could the other direction. Mm. And then people would let go, you know, because sure. it, it hurt like shit. Right. Am I allowed to swear by yes. the way? This fuck? Uh, it hurt like shit. Yeah. And uh, so then when they, as I saw them do that to about four or five people and then they got to me and I was like, I'm, hey, I'm here. I'm gonna, let, I'm letting go. I'm happy to participate and cooperate and right, do it. Right. I was not interested in that. Um, so, um, but yeah, you know, they, uh, they zip tied my hands behind my back and um, I ended up with like a little bit of nerve damage in my thumb. It was about six months until I could feel my left thumb again. But, you know, whatever. That's the the big giant price I paid to, you know, for representative democracy. Right. Yeah. Now, a friend of mine was, uh, is friends with Quentin Tarantino. Okay. And told me that Quentin was once arrested. I think it was for something innocuous, like a ton of unpaid parking tickets okay. or something right. like that. And could either pay the huge fine uh -huh. or spend two days in jail or something like that. Yeah. And decided to spend two days in jail. Okay. And during his time there, he had come up with the idea for Reservoir Dogs. Ah, hilarious. And, you know, a lot of the dialogue, you know, just listening to conversations and, and, and being sort of that sponge. Right. Uh, what did you write in prison? Did you come up with <laughs> any sort of prison? <laughs> no, I did no actual writing in prison. I watched a very terrible Heather Thomas movie, um... Uh, where uh, she, uh, because the prison cell that I was in had a TV, it was like a group cell, 
uh, and uh, and there was a movie that I was not familiar with from the 80s where she was uh, on a motorcycle. She's like a motorcycle, uh, you know, uh, vigilante or something. And um, and I happened to meet her a couple of years later and uh, and like thanked her for, you know, her entertainment getting me through, getting some, through, through some tough times. Tough times and, right. and she was like, what was it? And I explained, I mentioned the movie because I still don't remember the title. She's like, oh yeah, I did that for Coke money. So that was... <laughs> That was there was that the one other time that I got arrested because I got arrested um, on Century Boulevard for the hotel workers who were striking for the right to um, bargain collectively. They were exactly. trying to form a union. Um, I got arrested there and I ended up in a jail cell with um, Tom Morello. Oh, from Rage Against the Machine. From Rage Against the Machine. My favorite band. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I like Rage, but I wasn't like a giant Rage fan or whatever. And outside of Zach De La Roche, I couldn't have named any of the any of the band members, including Tom Morello, but right. I was in the cell, and there were maybe about 40 of us in this particular cell, and there was a, a telephone against the wall, like a pay phone, where you could call out, but um, none of us had money on us because they took all our money away from us. You had to like know a calling card number to dial really? out. Mm -hmm. This was like, I want to say 2006 or 2007. It was, it was a while ago. Um, and uh, so I'm sitting in my bunk, and um, somebody yells out, hey, does anyone know a calling card number? This guy from Rage Against the Machine wants to call <laughs> K-Rock. And I uh, was like, yeah, I know a calling card number. So, because um, I, I still was using a calling card at that point, like my own home phone didn't have long distance service. I had to dial out with a calling card. So I went over and I used, I, I gave Tom Morello my calling card number. I just sort of recited it to him. So he dialed in and then he called in and he talked to Kevin and Bean. Right. And then I just kind of like forgot about it. And like, and then a couple of years, actually several years later, I was playing like Guitar Hero and there are sort of different levels and different sort of like, you know, actual like rock stars that you play against. You have to defeat to go into the next level. And I'm playing and then Tom, the computer Tom Morello comes out. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I was in jail with that guy. I gave him my calling card. Right. So there's a, I think maybe the only interesting things that came out of my jail experience. And in your time as... Because you've worked on Family Guy since 2005, correct? Uh, we actually started writing in April of 2004. Okay. The, uh, the first episodes aired in 2005, but because animation, and particularly Family Guy in particular, has such a long lead time, right. like the stuff we were working on in April of 2004 wasn't coming out oh, until September of 2005. Yeah. But in your, since you've been working for so long since then, have you ever run into Tom Morello and... Ask for your 37 cents back from the phone card that you... I have not, but I... Uh, so I mentioned this on my Twitter feed. Yeah. And um, and uh, like a K-Rock producer saw it and was like, oh my God, we remember this. And they actually... Like I... Honestly, when it happened, I didn't even know if Tom Morello even got on the air. Like I just oh, gave right. him my number and I just went back over to my bunk and I just right. sort of went to sleep. And I never like checked up. I wasn't like calling friends like, hey, did Rich against the machine guy call <laughs> Kevin and Bean? Right. Like, I just I had my life to leave. And um, but uh, I just happened to mention it on Twitter like a few months ago. And a producer from K-Rock saw it and was like, oh, this is still one of our favorite calls of all time. And so they... Uh, they had me on, they had me call in just to sort of tell basically the story that I just told you. And, um, and Tom Morello like tweeted in and said, yeah, that was, this is 100% true. This actually happened. I used my one phone call on K-Rock, whatever. So. That should get you some free concert tickets now that they're back together. It seems right? like it, right? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, they were split apart for a number of years, but now that they're back together, you should say, hey, you know, remember that calling card? Yeah. Tickets? I don't know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. All right. I should, I should, I should pull some strings. <laughs> yeah. I, right now, I, technically, I guess you don't need that. I guess you could pull enough strings otherwise. I, I just think you know what? Cool I like story. to support Rage Against the Machine. If I am going to go see them in concert, I will. Um, I will uh, buy a ticket. Fair I actually enough. saw them at Lollapalooza, and Zach Della Rocha like spent a large part of the show flipping the audience off. And I'm like, <laughs> eh, all right, I don't know, maybe this isn't quite my band. Um, okay, so uh, getting back to writing, sure, and which is what a lot of listeners are here for. Although I love the Zach Della Rocha or Tom Morello raging at the machine story, and you yeah. getting arrested is always a great. Great time. Ha yeah, yeah, happy to happy to relay the time. <laughs> um, how did you get started writing as a writer? 
what was your first professional writing gig and sort of how did you land it? Well, um, so like how long of the story do you want? Do you want the two minute story or the 12 minute story? We got time. Okay. All right. So, uh, I came, uh, I'm from the state of Washington originally. I'm from a really small town in Washington and I came, uh, to UCLA, uh, for undergrad, uh, for history. And I only came because my dad's a military brat and it looked like, or I'm a military brat, excuse me. My dad was in the air force. It looked like he was going to get transferred to California. So I applied to a California school to try and get in state, got into UCLA, um, to study history. And that's what I ended up getting my degree in is history. But while I was there, I fell in with some guys, like three or four other guys who, we're like, hey, let's um, make a public access TV show. And uh, at the time, I don't know if it's still the case, but at the time, all the cable stations and cable networks had to make a certain channel of theirs publicly available to just kind of any asshole who wants right. to make a show. And in fact, they also were required to make their equipment available like under certain sort of circumstances. So me and three of my friends just started like writing comedy sketches together. And, um, and then we would, uh, like go there, you know, on the weekend, like early Saturday morning, check out the equipment, use it all day and all night, the whole weekend, and then like turn it in on Monday morning. And then we have all this footage, uh, of, you know, skits that we had filmed and none of us were film students that didn't have access to edit bays. Now you could just do it on your iPhone. Back right. then you needed an actual edit bay. So we would sneak into the uh, edit bays at UCLA film school like in the middle of the night when it seemed like nobody was using them and just sort of edit our footage there and just put shit on the air. And I'm sure nobody saw it, but we were having a blast. And somewhere in that time, somebody pointed out to me, you know, there's people who do this for a living. Like, you know, this is how some people like pay their bills and, you know, feed their families and stuff. And that hadn't occurred to me at all. And, um, and I had remembered like a guidance counselor when I was in high school saying, so what you need to do in life is do for a job is do the thing that you would do for free anyway, and just do that. Uh, right. the trick obviously is try, try and figure out a way to get somebody to pay you for right. it, but, but do that thing. And, and it occurred to me, you know, I'm not like on the weekends, like sort of like going to high schools and teaching high school history for free. Um, I am on the weekends, like writing, you know, like fart jokes and shit and, and filming those sketches for free. So maybe I should sort of listen to that. Well, it's too late at that point to do anything about my degree. I got my history degree is sort of too far into it. And then, um, uh, was, uh, just sort of, I was delivering pizzas for pizza hut and trying to figure out what to do with my life. And then right around the time that I got dumped by my girlfriend, I was like, all right, maybe it's time to sort of like check back in with this comedy writing shit. So at that point, I started applying to film schools, which if anybody's listening, the first thing you learn at film school is you don't need to go to film school. But I, <laughs> I went to film school. I went to USC for their screenwriting program. And then while I was there, I um, got uh, I decided to start looking for an internship because somebody had mentioned, hey, this is, this is a good thing to do. And, um, and I didn't know how one gets an internship, but I just started like calling production offices of television shows that I thought that I liked. I'm like, Hey, hi, I'm a nice guy and I'd like to come work for you for free. Can I come work for you for free? And they all were like, no, no, no. But then Darman and Greg, who you mentioned said, yes, uh, come in for an interview. So I came in and they were like, okay, you seem nice and, um, you know, you're able to uh, complete a sentence or something. Um, this is for college credit, right? And I realized then that it was absolutely not. At, mm -hmm. at USC is probably the case at most places. If you want to get credit, even for an internship, you have to pay them money. Right. Um, in addition to working for free, you're also then paying money on top of it, which I didn't, I didn't want to do. I hadn't gotten the internship through USC. Like I just were calling people blank. So, but I lied, which if anybody is listening to this, uh, wants like sort of my number one kind of tip and suggestion, it's lie your ass off. Just <laughs> it's, it, it never backfires. It always pays off. So I lied and I said, yes, that it was. And they were like, okay, good. 
And then I, the whole, you know, several months that I was there, I was like, uh, as an intern, I was like, okay, they're going to ask for like some special form. I'm going to have to go home and forge something or whatever. But they never did. I think they were just kind of covering their ass. Right, right. And then I was an intern there for a season. And, um, you know, working for free and it, it wasn't glamorous work. But I remember my very first day there, <clears throat> it was on the Fox lot. And um, there was like a case of bottled water that they needed delivered to some other building across the lot. And they're like, you can go ahead and use the golf cart. So it's like September. It's fucking warm and sunny. And I'm driving like this golf cart across the Fox lot, you know, for no money. But I was like, I have arrived. Like mm-hmm. that was, I was like... I am in Hollywood now, and anything else that happens in my life from here on is just like frosting on the cake right. because I have I've achieved my goal, and um, and again, you know, the actual work was just whatever bullshit internship, photocopying and running for groceries and stuff. But the deal that I made with myself was, okay, my payment is going to be I'm going to ask one question a day. I'm going to find a writer who like is very stupidly like appears to be not busy. And who seems nice, and I'm going to say, hey, I noticed that such and so scene was in um, the run through yesterday, but it wasn't in there today. Like, why? What happened? And like, they would answer the question, be like, okay, thank you, right? And then I go do dishes, and right. that would be my payment for the day. And then I come back tomorrow, and then you know, same thing. Like, oh, hey, um, so how come like it's it, it's always end of act one, end of act two, like end of show? Do you ever have like a end of act three like okay oh you oh you'll break it up this way sometimes okay good thank you all right i'm gonna go walk jenna elfman's dog now you know and um so that was my payment and then at the end of that first season of being an intern they were like okay well looks like darman gregs can get picked up next year would you like to come back and be a pa and I was like, yeah, because this that way would... you're getting paid. If we don't have to now I'm questions. getting paid exactly. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, instead of yeah, your payment will be payment. <laughs> right, right. And right. Um, so I said, yeah, this is already way longer than uh, no, no, no. than I promised. So Not I apologize, but no, it, it'll get to I'll get to an answer eventually, right? So building. Okay, so uh, so then I came back next year. It allowed me to to quit my waiter job, which I was happy about. I didn't have to work at Louise's anymore, and because I could get paid. Uh, being a night PA, which <clears throat> is the lowest job on the totem pole, it, certainly in a live action show, short of being the unpaid intern. But your job starts as a night PA when um, everybody else's ends, like the writers finish their uh, rewrite and the writer's assistants do the proof and then they have the copy and then they hand it to you on their way out the door and you're receiving it at you know, if you're lucky, 8 p.m., if you're unlucky, midnight or later, and then you've got to photocopy it like 500 times, mm-hmm. deliver it all over town, throw a copy over Thomas Gibson's back gate, you know, right. and stuff. So they have something to read over their cornflakes, which they're not going to read anyway. No. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> but still, it was an opportunity to work like in television production. And then I could, because my job started late, I could come in early enough to watch the actual run throughs. And sort of see, like, a little bit about what the writer's job was. Even just there, it's like, okay, they're watching the run-throughs. They have their scripts. Whenever people laugh, they're putting a check next to the joke that people are responding to. Whenever people don't laugh next to it, they'll put a line next to the joke. That means, oh, we got to fix this. And then they all would go into the writer's room, and they would start from the top and fix the jokes that need fixing and keep the jokes that seem like they, you know, work well. And I'm there, and I just saw the run-through, and I just put checks and lines in my script just like they did. But now I've got time on my hands because I can't really start my show, my actual work, until they are done. So I would sort of put on my pretend writer hat, and I Uh would go find like a coat closet or something. And I would just go through the script myself. And I would be like, all right, let's pretend I'm a writer on Dharma and Greg. And here's this joke that everybody knows didn't work. If I were the writer in there, what would I be pitching? I'd just sort of sit there, and I would just kind of write two or three jokes. And then I'd flip to the next page that had a joke that needed to be fixed. Like, okay, mm, I'll this joke, this joke, this joke. And then at the end of the script, right, oh, now I've got a script with some jokes in it, right? What do I do with it? Throw it in the fucking garbage because the writers don't want my jokes, right? They're, they're good at it. I'm not good mm-hmm. at it, but I'm just sort of pretending. I'm just kind of working the muscle. So that was... A great experience. And then at the end of that production season, the whole production staff, not writers of that show, 
got moved over to uh, produce this pilot for this Fox sitcom called Titus. Mm. And um, I got a chance to move over to that for just for the pilot production process. And that gave me my first opportunity to be in an actual writer's room. <clears throat> the Titus pilot had a writer's assistant, but sometimes he would have to go photocopy something, or sometimes he would have to go be in a room where notes are being given, and there's another room that's going, and so who's gonna, you know, sort of like sit at the computer for us? Oh, Patrick Megan, the you know, PA out there, will you come do it? So that was my first opportunity to actually be in a writer's room, sort of see why jokes are getting in or not getting in, kind of get a feel for some of this kind of room politics or whatever. And then when that pilot ended up getting picked up, they asked me, did you want to come be a writer's assistant on Titus, which was an amazing opportunity. And so I said, yes. So now I was a writer's assistant on Titus and uh, was working with, um, or for, I guess I should say, some really great writers. And um, these great writers wrote awesome, hilarious shit, but sometimes they would get stuck, like rarely, but sometimes they'd be like, okay, we can't, what's a good joke for here? This joke is not working. And some shows, and apparently Dharma and Greg is one of them, um, are famous for, Chuck Lorre apparently is famous for, or was famous for, not wanting the writer's assistant to ever open his or her mouth ever. Like, and maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, I don't know, but basically the 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 word about him at least then was if you're working in his room as a writer's assistant don't think that this is a pathway to being a writer mm. don't think that this is a pathway to getting your jokes on television you're just typing up our shit and <clears throat> at uh titus it was 100 percent the opposite the showrunners jack kenny and brian hargrove and christopher titus the creator of the show um absolutely wanted pitches if nobody else had anything and you had something so I started getting pitches into the show, which was a blast to be able to like turn on network television. Fox, I guess, technically was a network and um, <laughs> and and see a joke that you pitched, like get said on television and have a studio audience laugh at mm -hmm. it and stuff like that. So that was that was a blast. And then at the end of that first year, um, uh, they asked, would you like to come on staff? Which, again, is an amazing opportunity. Again, assuming Titus comes back and. I said yes, and it did come back. It came back for two more seasons. So I was a staff writer on that show for two more seasons. And then it got canceled. And then in the interim, um, after it got canceled, my showrunners, Jack Kenny and Brian Hargrove, got sort of shotgun married to Seth MacFarlane, mm -hmm. who um, had been the creator of Family Guy, but Family Guy had been canceled. It had done three seasons and then was off the air. And so Fox was paying overall deals to, to my showrunners, was paying overall deal to Seth MacFarlane. Those guys were sitting around with nothing to do. So it was like, hey, you guys make a pilot together. Um, they didn't even know each other. It was like, all right, well, Fox says we have to work together now. And, um, and my bosses said, hey, you know, I know that you uh, used to be a writer for a couple of years, but before that you were a writer's assistant. Would you be willing to be a writer's assistant again? Because we need one for this this pilot that we're working on with this guy named Seth MacFarlane. And I was like, yeah, cause I needed a job. I wasn't mm -hmm. proud about moving backwards. Like, yeah, well, sure. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I worked on this live action pilot with Seth MacFarlane and with, um, Jack and Brian. And, um, it was called Simon and it didn't end up going anywhere, but little pieces of it, like I've seen little pieces of it in a bunch of different kind of Seth MacFarlane productions. Right. Like there were definitely thematic elements that he goes back to again and again, but it didn't go anywhere. But again, I was able to get some jokes into the pilot script and stuff and um, got to know Seth MacFarlane a little bit. So when that um, pilot died, um, Family Guy got picked back up because the DVDs of it had sold, you know, a lot, apparently, even after it had been canceled. And the reruns of it were like the top rated show on TBS, again, even though the show itself no longer existed. So, um, so uh, I got an opportunity to get in there and meet for that show for three reasons. One is that Way back when I was in college and I did that public access TV show mm -hmm. with three of my buddies, one of those buddies had been a writer's assistant on Family Guy and then became a writer on Family Guy and was being brought back. His name is Steve Callahan. He's now an executive producer on Family Guy 
and had been a showrunner on Family Guy and American Dad for a while. So that was one. Two was um, when I was at Titus, I wrote with this guy named Chris Sheridan, who was a producer, who was really good, had been on Family Guy for a couple of years before coming over to Titus and was coming back to Family Guy again. So that was number two that kind of got me in the door. And then number three was... I had worked for Seth MacFarlane as a writer's assistant on his pilot, Simon, and apparently he thought, oh, that guy is funny enough to be willing to meet with and read his script and whatever, and you know was able to contribute stuff in the room and was a decent guy. So those three things got me a meeting at Family Guy, and I was fortunate enough to get hired. So there it is. I think I promised a 12-minute story. It was a 20-minute long story. I think possibly <laughs> at least. I apologize to every single fucking one of your listeners, but um, I got incredibly lucky like every step of the way. And even in places where I got what seemed to me to be unlucky, I got super lucky. So for example, um, when Titus got canceled, uh, Bruce Helford, uh, who created... Um, uh, created the uh, uh, Bruce Carey or what is Drew, uh, Carey. Drew Carey show thank you and uh, like several other shows was creating this new show called um, the George Lopez show mm. and apparently Bruce Helford was a big fan of Titus or something because almost every writer got to meet for that George Lopez show oh. um, but not me Oh. And, and, and I don't know why, I don't know why, for some reason, I was like the one writer who did not get a call to meet, and several of those writers ended up getting jobs there, but right. again, not me. And and I was like, wow, I must be the most unlucky guy in the world. But if I had gotten that job at the George Lopez show, I would not have been able, I would not have been available when Family Guy came along, and, and I was, so I got that Family Guy job. And now, you know, the George Lopez show has been gone like a decade. Right. And some very talented writers, you know, have been doing different things in the interim, but have not had the opportunity that I have had where, you know, in April it will be 16 years. Right. Like, you know, that's a, a third of my life, uh, like as a human being on planet Earth, has been spent right. as a writer on one show. Like this just does not happen. Right. And and it happens at Family Guy through a whole lot of luck. It happens at Family Guy because the cartoon characters don't age, right? Sure. Stewie doesn't, um, you know, turn 23 and become like a, a hardcore conservative Christian who disavows his show <laughs> and stuff, right? They just kind of stay who they are um, or they only change because we decide to change them. Right. And it's been an incredible ride and they are going to have to carry me out of their feet first. They are going to win... When I finally am dragged out of there, you're going to find like carpet fibers under my fingernails <laughs> of me just sort of refusing to leave because right. I've been having a great time there. Until someone else moves into that office, even if Family Guy moves even out, so, you're, you're still going to be there. I will stay there. Yeah, no, I think we were like the Pets.com uh, uh, suite of offices before they went out of business and Seriously? we moved in. I think so. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so whatever, like – Whatever becomes the next kind of dot com that moves right. in after we move out, they're gonna be like, "Hey, you know, we're trying to um, do this mobile game. Uh, why is there like <laughs> that fucking weird old guy in there who keeps like muttering about Quagmire?" Right. We're like, yeah, I have jokes for Quagmire. <laughs> I don't know. You have to find a different outlet for your Quagmire jokes. I guess so. That's yeah. funny. Um, okay, so uh, yeah. That reminds me of an old Chinese proverb of an old farmer and his son. I don't know if you've heard that, I have. that proverb uh, where the, uh, the farmer and his son, they have horses. Yep. And, one, and the horses, uh, one of the horses, no, they have one horse. That's what it starts with. And the horse runs off. And the horse used to help them plow and help them around the farm. And, then right. all the and neighbors the neighbors say, say, oh, that's bad luck. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'll let you tell it. No, no, no. You go ahead no, and tell no, no, it. No, no, absolutely. Right? The, yeah. the, they say, oh, that's bad luck. He's yeah. like, oh, we'll see. And yeah. then uh, the horse comes back and brought like... Five wild mares. Five wild mares with it. And they're like, oh, that's good luck. And they're like, yeah, we'll see. And yeah. then like the son goes, tries to break one of the mares yeah. and falls off and breaks his leg. And they're like, oh, that's bad luck. And right. he's like, yeah, we'll see. And then like the army comes to recruit the son, but they don't take him because his leg is broken. Right. And they're like, "Wow, that's good luck." He's like, "Yeah, we'll see." Yeah. And I actually don't know where it goes. End from of there. story. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who knows what every step leads to? Right. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent the case. So like when you listen to this, whoever is listening to this, when you listen to this, and then you open up 
you know, CNN.com and you're like, asteroid hits Family Guy production office, right. like all writers dead. And they'll be like, ha ha, yeah, there, there's your bad luck, Megan. And <laughs> somewhere, you know, my flaming butthole will be like, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> okay. On that note, let's move on to, yeah. um, <clears throat> what's your favorite character to write for on the show? Um, so, uh, and I know this is not what you're asking, nor is it even what you're implying, but I just sort of want to say that, uh, one of the kind of weird kind of misnomers, uh, for people who write in comedy right. is that certainly it's the case that, oh, you got multiple writers, you got multiple characters. It must be the case that one writer writes for this character, one writer writes for that character, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody writes for every character. Sure. Um, and you probably know that, and probably 99% of the people listening know that. But for the 1% who didn't, all the writers write for all the characters. I like writing Brian because writing Brian is kind of an act of um, masochism. You know, <laughs> Brian is this, you know, like Brian's a writer, but he's a fraud. And he's very self-righteous. He's a self-righteous liberal who talks about egalitarianism and stuff. But whenever he gets even just sort of the tiniest bit of power or opportunity, he immediately turns into just kind of a monster and an asshole. And that really, to me, is really us. I don't know that we've ever acknowledged it directly, like, in the room. But I really feel like we've made a sort of collective unconscious agreement. This is going to be us beating the shit out of ourselves like day after day. And like, you know, the fact that it's basically Seth MacFarlane kind of doing his own voice and he's right. kind of the, the head writer, the first writer, you know, uh, that family guy ever had. It's kind of been fun to just pummel the shit out of Brian in that way. So that will be my answer to that. Okay. To that question. I normally like asking comedy writers, especially <clears throat> if, there are any particular jokes that you remember pitching that you thought were amazing, perfect, and yet for some reason were never included. The uh, the room didn't find it as funny. It didn't. Whatever reason, it didn't make it into the show. Are there any jokes or bits that you thought this? Oh, this is amazing. This is gold. And you walk into that room and you pitch it. And yeah, no, not really. Because like I kind of never. I... <sighs> I know I never have tons of faith, honestly, in just about any joke that I ever pitch, right? So it's like almost any joke that I pitch, it's like you guys aren't gonna like this, right? <laughs> and then and then if it gets a laugh, I'm like, oh, you you do? Right. Oh, okay, I got lucky, right? And then which is why, by the way, it's always so hard for me to cut jokes or to see jokes get cut is because because I always feel like such a fucking fraud who just totally lucked into this, like. Any joke that I do manage to get in through that process, that very pathetic process I just described, <laughs> feels like that's probably the last joke I'll ever think of ever. Right. It's so hard to think of jokes, and I and I just somehow barely got one, so we can't cut it. You don't understand. Like this is, I'll never be back this way again. Right. So so no, it's rare that I go in going, all right, fucking calling my shot right, right here. Here right. comes the joke. Um, some of the jokes that stick in my brain are jokes actually that I think should not have gotten in, but that do get in oh, that I'm like, Oh no, that should not be in. And, um, cause sometimes, right. So the process is such that the collective writing process is such that, you know, we have a script that we need to rewrite. And when the script is rewritten, we get to go home. Right. And everybody wants to go home. And, um, and so, but you can't, Go home until all the jokes that are currently not funny are replaced with jokes that are funny. So sometimes you'll pitch a joke even kind of knowing this is never going to get on the air. Mm -hmm. But people might laugh at it right now, which means we get to then move on to the next joke, right. which gets us that much closer to going home. Yes, we're going to be back this way again, you know, two weeks down the road, two months down the road, you know, eight months down the road. But that's... That's a problem for then. Right now, I just kind of <laughs> want to go home. So I remember one joke I pitched where it was Peter and it, it was uh, Peter doing a flashback to Zan and Jaina, who are the Wonder Twins that uh, y you would have to be in your 40s probably to remember. But they uh, were a couple of cartoon characters the in Super the Friends. Super Friends, exactly, who could touch magic rings they were brother and sister and they could touch they were like teenagers and they could touch magic rings and one of them would be like shape of an eagle right mm -hmm. and the other would be like form of water and then um 
so uh, it was like a Wonder Twins area for some reason. I've got no idea why. And I pitched. Uh, they they. Peter is Zan, the 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 teenage boy, and then Jaina is Jaina, and they touch thing rings, and Jaina goes, uh, you know, shape of an eagle. And then she's like, okay, you know, Zan, you turn into something. And he's like, uh, go on, you can fly, fly on ahead of me. I'll catch up to you. And so she flies out and he goes, form of Jaina's tampon <laughs> and uh, turns into a tampon and then sort of flips itself into a purse. And then you hear from inside, and now we play the waiting game. <laughs> and it was obviously disgusting and just bad and wrong reasons for all sorts of bad reasons. But I'm like, this will get me home a little bit faster today. Right, right. Standards will never let us do it, and um, and nor should they. And they're gonna stop us from doing it. But for right now, it'll. And then I just sort of forgot about it. And then I'm home watching Family Guy, and I see that cutaway on the air. And it was like, like a, a whole a cold chill went right. down into my heart. Like, no, no, America was not <laughs> supposed to see that. So those are the things that stick with me longer than jokes that I think of that other people don't think are funny. Well, funny. <laughs> well the story was funny. All right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The joke was funny too. But okay, you know, it's not twisted. It's, like I said, not it's not <clears throat> something I'm proud of. Um, now a majority of animation projects, especially features, and uh -huh. you haven't done well. You've done a lot of animation, but it's been for one show, right? Really, um, and you've also done a lot of other genres or yeah. mediums, I should say, of writing okay. for television. But a, a lot of animation projects are developed in house, like a Disney feature films yeah. and things like that, or from an IP. Yeah. Uh, but from your work and knowledge and experience working on Family Guy, you know, animated sitcoms can be a little different. Right. For those writers out there who have an idea or or have a pilot, have written a pilot for an animated sitcom, is pitching it different than pitching a live action series? You know, what sort of pitch material should they have prepared? How should they sort of look at it? Well, it's a good question because I haven't done a ton of it. I've gone out and I've pitched a couple different pilots that have sort of gone kind of like varying levels, varying degrees of the way down the road. And, um, you know, in both cases, they kind of like became something other than kind of what I went out to do. So then when ultimately the plug got pulled, I was like, oh, thank God, I, I can go back to Family Guy where it's, <laughs> it's safe and warm. Um, and, uh, and the honest truth is like until relatively recently, like I haven't felt much impulse to get out there and try and create something of my own. When I first started in this business, I was doing it not even necessarily because there were ideas that I like felt passionate about, but just so I sort of felt like, oh, well, that's what a good writer does is a good writer get out, gets out there with his or her own ideas and wants to create something and isn't isn't happy just sort of like, you know, continuing to kind of like rehash somebody else's vision. And I finally decided, oh, fuck that. I'm actually pretty happy doing what I'm doing mm -hmm. right now. So, but in a world in which I were not, and particularly if in that world I were um, uh, sort of just starting out or trying to yeah. kind of break in as opposed to, you know, having been in the business a while, especially if it's animation, like I would really try and figure out a way to make some very small episodes of basically on my own mm -hmm. and let that be the calling card. The South Park route. Kind basically of. the South Park route. Yeah. There's a, um, I don't know if it's still on, but there's an HBO show called animals, um, that went that same route. And it's like the animation is super, um, primitive. Like if you look like the backgrounds, a lot of the backgrounds are just actual like photos mm. that they've just sort of cribbed off the internet or whatever. And, like you look at it and you're not like, Oh, well, you've got to be an artistic genius to create that. Like, and these guys totally just, it was a couple of like really hilarious dudes who just made this show and, you know, just put it on YouTube or whatever mm -hmm. and like got seen that way. And then there are other people who create things in that way. And the show itself might not necessarily got on the air, but it's like, Oh, you're hilarious. And right. for whatever reason, we can't go with that, but what else do you have? Or, you know, um, would you be interested in being involved in this? So, I, I mean, the way, obviously, the way you break into this business, like, you know, keeps changing, right? When I, 
I still work with some people who got started, believe it or not, in the 80s. And like back then, as near as I can understand from what they're saying, there was a time where like, oh, okay, well, if you're an aspiring writer who lives in Connecticut or something, you think you're funny, just like write a script of Golden Girls and like send it to Golden mm-hmm. Girls, like mail it there, like right. snail mail. And then you'll get a letter back in a couple of weeks that says, you're you're talented kid. Pack your bags. Right. You're going to Hollywood, and like that sure doesn't happen now. Right. And that happened a lot on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah. yeah. God love God love everybody who got a job that way. Um, but I don't I don't think that's how yeah. it happens now. Nor do I think, with very rare exceptions, nor do I think the way it happens is you write that script and instead of sending it to Golden Girls, you mm-hmm. send it to uh, CAA. And an agent says, you're hilarious, kid. Move on out here. I'm going to get you a job in Hollywood. Like, if that happens at all, like, it's so rare. I think the way it happens now is either you go the assistant route like Mm -hmm. I did um, and or, and really it should be and, there's no reason why you have to limit yourself to one or the other. You are creating some of your own stuff or, and you're working with other people who are creating some of their own stuff. So that, like... Which there are people who got jobs at Family Guy that way, who because they had been working, they had been creating stuff with Seth MacFarlane when he was at RISD at Rhode Island School of Design. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Mike Henry, uh, the uh, voice of Cleveland Brown and several other characters, is one of those people. But there were others as well, and it's like, okay, well, if one of those people had gotten his creation like picked up they probably would have hired seth mcfarlane like hey here's this hilarious young guy that i know from RISD, and he's out here like hustling and trying to make it happen my show got picked up so i'm gonna hire him but it worked out the other way right seth mcfarlane got hired and he's like hey wow awesome i have this tv show now it's fucking great i created the show basically on my living room table which is what Mm -hmm. he did um and now i have the chance to hire people i'm gonna hire some of these people who I've worked with in the past too. They were, you know, working on stuff. So it's like, if you can like try and get an assistant gig, if, if you can swallow it, I liked it, but there are some people who like, you know, just their egos won't let them or, or whatever. I got lucky. I, I all my assistant jobs were good assistant jobs. So right. I'm not going to deny that. But if you can sort of try and do that, try and work on something of your own and try and work with other people who are working on things of their own, you kind of have bought three lottery tickets, which is better than one lottery right, ticket. Right, absolutely. Know? So, yeah. Okay, right. that's good. Um, now, when you're looking to staff, yeah, meaning you're on, when writers are looking to staff and you as you know, an EP or looking for a staff or writers. Oh yeah. I um, should point out by the way, I, the, despite the fact that I'm an EP, I'm not sure. a showrunner. Right. But I'm so sure I don't sat actually in on meeting on, on staffing meetings. I have all? not. Oh, okay. No. Okay. No. And I'm sorry if, no, uh, no, not at all. It's not helpful to your listeners, but I have not sat in on staffing meetings and I'm glad to not have, because that just seems, honestly, it seems heartbreaking in a way. Like, Oh, I've got, you know, we only have a slot for one and we've got these right. five people who would be hilarious and great and who need the job and right. stuff. Like having to tell four of them, sorry, no, like I'm glad that that's not my job. Right. I have not, honestly, not one time have I looked over at the showrunners at Family Guy. It's now been multiples that I've worked for and gone, oh, how do I get in that fucking chair? Like, I don't want that chair. Right. I'm happy where I am. Well, but at the same time, I've heard stories where a writer will go in have a great rapport uh-huh. and for whatever reason, whether the showrunner liked somebody else a little bit better, they thought they were a better fit, their experience was better, uh, maybe it was a political hire, for whatever reason, they didn't get a gig. Yeah. Later on, because they met someone else in the room that uh-huh. liked them and they got a show or a different show or the next season, they get called back. Just going in and meeting the showrunner is, and hopefully developing a good rapport is great in terms of that, because again, you never know where a job's going to come from. True. That's, that's true. Yeah. Or yeah. even, I, I've even heard of stories where a meeting will take place and the showrunner likes this person, loves their writing, but can't hire them or they hire somebody else instead for whatever reason. And then it comes along where this showrunner who's friends with another showrunner is like, Oh, I've interviewed this person. You should take a look at this person. And then they get a job that way. You never really know where a job's coming from. Awesome. So like, you know, good news, bad news. Good news, bad news. Yeah, That's so, right. Good luck, bad luck. Right. Yeah. So, you know, as long as it's not, you know, because there are incidents where you hear showrunners obviously passing for specific reasons. Yeah. 
Um, but you never know where it's going to lead. No, like, you had don't. you been brought into George Lopez, you may not be where you are right now. Right, right? exactly. You may have been hired in George Lopez and be doing something else right now. Right. You know, a different show. Right. right. So. Or, yeah, or maybe, who knows? Yeah. Maybe I would have bought a lottery ticket on my way home from that George Lopez meeting right. that I took, and I'd be a billionaire. I'd be like, I'm fucking write. <laughs> I don't want to write jokes for Cleveland Brown. Right. Um, or you'd be like backup drummer on Rage Against the Machine. Or something. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You just don't know. You don't know. Yeah. Um, you've done a lot of writing for variety slash uh, comedy specials. Yeah. The specifically, which I found super interesting, uh, Comedy Central roasts for Charlie Sheen, uh-huh. The Hoff, and of course Donald Trump. Of course, I, I just one I want to ask how you ended up working on those coming from Titus, and you also written for the Oscars, um, from what I've read. And how did you end up working for those, and what is that experience like? Well, so I mean the. The uh, the thread that links all of those things, of right. course, is Seth MacFarlane hosting. Oh, okay. Right? So oftentimes in a situation like a variety thing like that mm-hmm. where they hire, you know, a uh, somebody who is established in the comedy world, that person will very often like have or will usually have comedy writers that he's worked with in the past or is currently working with. And... So uh, then when the show gets put together, it'll sort of be an amalgam of writers who are sort of associated with the production itself, just kind of as a production. Maybe they've written for all of the roasts or they are, you know, friends or, you know, business partners with the producer of the roast, right? Like on one side and then on the other side, people who are friends with or who work for the host, him or herself, right? Who is like, okay, great. I've got this uh, gig. I'm going to be, you know, doing a roast of this, uh, asshole named Donald Trump who is never going to amount to anything and is a piece of fucking garbage. But I um, am going to sort of ask these three or four writers from Family Guy, like, hey, um, it it seems like it might be in your ballpark to, uh, you know, pitch me some jokes for that. So that's the way it was. And then same thing with the Oscars. Like back in the days, you kids who are listening to this won't remember this, but there used to be a time when the Oscars had this thing called a host, which was like a human being. And uh, and so then yeah when a when a um, a host gets hired like say it's uh, Ellen DeGeneres right well mm-hmm. Ellen DeGeneres has writers from her show sure so then when she is hosting like her jokes it were a written by her and also written by the writers who she's already knows and are comfortable with in some few cases they may be written by other writers who have written for the Oscars in the past and who maybe every year right for the Oscars but generally speaking like that's a separate group of writers who will write like oh okay Sandra Bullock is going to you know present and she wants to say something funny so these other writers will write the jokes for Sandra Bullock when she presents Mm -hmm. but um you know uh, Ellen DeGeneres has her own writers so but when you then watch the credits after the Oscars if you made it all the way to the end so fucking long uh, those names are all sort of mingled together. Right. Like it doesn't say these writers are just Ellen's. Right. Writers. These writers wrote the joke that you know uh, Bob Balaban said or whatever. Right. It wouldn't. Bob Balaban wouldn't be the Oscars. That was a bad example. But uh, <laughs> they all just sort of blend together. But he should. He should. Yeah. Um, they'll just kind of blend together. When you right. look on the IMDb page, you're like, oh, look at all these variety hosts. I'm like, well, yeah, kind of. But like in my case. I, uh, there was no sort of like, oh, big um, production meeting for the Hasselhoff roast and all the writers are sitting around a big table like, what can we say about the Hoff? It's just sort of like Seth goes to some of those meetings and then Seth turns around and emails the writers that he's comfortable with and it's like, pitch me all the jokes you got about mm-hmm. David Hasselhoff and we just email him just a shitload and then he'll just go through and go, I like this one, I don't like any of these, this right. and this. So, um, you know, so like what the actual sort of process is like for me is like, oh, I go to a coffee bean and tea leaf and I sit in the corner and I go, all right, what's a joke I can make about David Hasselhoff's DUI, you know? Right, right. (laughs) And then I just email it. So it's the same as, it's the same as writing a spec Raymond or something. Right. It's just, you're just sitting there in your hoodie, like 
uh, you know, in a coffee shop writing shit. Think about the meanest thing you can say to that writer. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, now, because it's a roast, I'm assuming the the roastee uh-huh. is not involved in the process whatsoever. So you probably didn't have too much uh, time in, in terms of with this individual pitching jokes. I'm sure you worked for Seth, not for Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. Not- no, I never met Trump. I never met David Hasselhoff. I never met Charlie Sheen. But yeah. I'm also assuming that Seth, being the host and other people you may have been involved with in the production, uh-huh. had any had stories about what had happened. <sighs> Were there any particular stories regarding any of these three guests that are roasties, I should say? They're not really guests. Yeah, yeah kind of the opposite of guests. Right. Um, you know, not really, because it's like any joke that you – any joke you, you write has to be gettable to people who didn't hear that story, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if you're like, oh, like – you know, Charlie Sheen did this one fucking gross thing where, like, he, uh, you know, he put a whole kitten in his mouth and it shit in there, you know? <laughs> and he'd be like, oh, great. Oh, I've got a great, which I don't have, I don't know that that is the case, by the way. Um, but <laughs> but and you if you're like, oh, I got a hilarious joke right. for that, but, like, that joke's not going to work because the audience doesn't know about that kitten story, which at this point, let's just go ahead and say it's true. Right. Um, so you kind of have to go f- with what's kind of publicly available. And in some cases, the roastee will have some of that stuff like off the hook, like, so for, or not off the hook, like out of bounds. So for example, with Trump, we were told even then, you know, there are rumors that he's not, he calls himself a billionaire. There's rumors he's actually not worth that. He's not worth a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. He, he's not as rich not as he likes to pretend that he is. Yeah. And, um, but he doesn't want any jokes about that. That was like the one rule that he said, like, you can hit me on anything, just open season, say whatever you want, but no jokes about me not really being a billionaire. So it was stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? right? Or um, there was one of them where, um, where there was one where Tommy Lee may have been on the dais. I think Tommy Lee was on the dais for one. And like, he... The, it obviously is a terrible tragic story it's not like it's not like oh i had a, a billion hilarious jokes for it cuz it's terrible but like he had hosted a pool party where a, a you know people weren't paying attention and a kid drowned in the right. pool or something and uh and the it like it went out like tommy lee is going to appear you can make jokes about tommy lee but not about that right so it'd be like stuff like that sure but that's like it so you would only kind of hear third hand shit from like a um right. Uh, from a guest, but you wouldn't necessarily hear inside stories again because the inside stories would not be useful to you as a joke writer. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, I meant more like uh, I remember. I think it was Tina Fey okay. appearing on Howard Stern, uh-huh. and Howard asked, "Who was the worst guest you've had on?" I think it was Tina Fey on SNL. Oh, okay. And she had said it was Paris Hilton. Oh, interesting. And she had said it was Paris Hilton. Because she was so into herself and so she took herself so seriously in terms of the jokes that they could do and things like that. Uh-huh. And I guess she said that she and I'm going to say Maya Rudolph made a, or maybe it was Seth Myers made a bet on who could get her to say, ask a question about someone else uh-huh. rather than just talking about herself. Yeah. Like, it, would she ask, you know, a question about somebody like you know where are you from right and i guess they made a bet and she never did she never did she never did apparently that's hilarious so i, I think her words were quote unquote i think she's a piece of shit i think something like that oh wow so i was just wondering well, if there from were any tina fey yeah i'm pretty sure it was i'm 99 sure yeah. it was tina fey who i love sure uh, yeah she's great but you know from the the guests that you have roasted I'm not going to say the Hoff, but, you know, the Charlie Sheen. Uh-huh. The Charlie, there, I was just wondering if there were any stories. No. I'm sorry. I don't know. I no, don't no, no, no. Yeah. That's that's more kind of what I was was getting. Not yeah. just a joke, but that's yeah. all, it's all good. All right. Um, now, I wanted to touch base on something uh, that I know you've got coming out very soon. Okay. And it's very different than other things you've written. It is. Uh, a comic book, which you've your first comic book, I'm assuming. It is. Called She Kills. Yes. 
can you talk a little bit about what it's about, where we can, when it's coming out, right. and where people can discover, find, purchase, read, look at uh-huh. this? Okay. Comic? Yeah. So um, uh, it's set in uh, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a spike. I, I I would say doing that because it spoils actually the very last page of the whole comic. The, the the first issue, you're just kind of reading about this really violent little fucking town in 1850 that averages a murder a day and just people are just constantly being stabbed and lynched and stuff. And it's just a garbage community. And then you only find out on the last page that it's Los Angeles. But there that is. But it's basically... Um, Los Angeles, in that time, this is right around the time of the American conquest of California, happened to be the murder capital of the world on a per capita basis because mm. there was only 1,000 people in the town. And they averaged a murder a day. So wow. that's, that's a third of your town right. that is you know, strangled or drowned or stabbed or lynched you know, by the end of the year. It's like Los Angeles right now has a population of like 4 million people. Like imagine in one year, like 1,400,000 people. <laughs> like what would it be like to live in that town, right? right? So I was going back and forth with this story and um, and it was... Uh, it this was, doesn't sound very funny. No, it's not. <laughs> it's it's really not. Right. It's about genocide. But, but um I was trying to kind of figure out the best angle to the story and um, and it was as I was really kicking that around that my daughter hit her teenage years Mm. and, um, and that brought with it a lot of a lot in particular, a lot of a lot between her and my wife Mm. who, uh, they love each other, you know, as much as any two human beings can love each other. But there's just, I think like a natural sort of separation and, um, at that age and, um, I was thinking, what would it be like to go through this experience, to go through this experience of raising a teenage daughter and having her sort of separate herself from you in that time and place, in a Los Angeles where that is so violent, uh, where men outnumber women 10 to 1, where um, uh, there's just massive sort of like social upheaval. And what would it be like to go through that if that mother and that daughter happened to be indigenous, happened to be Tongva, mm-hmm. Gabrielino Indians? So it is a mother-daughter story where the kind of emotional violence between mother and daughter is mirrored in the actual violence around mother and daughter. And um, all of the characters, with the exception of the protagonist, are absolutely real. All the prote- all the characters are oh, wow. like based on actual people who lived in that time and people who, in most cases, like murdered each other in that time. Right. And um, this is, I guess, my history degree, uh, you know, finally kind of coming back to haunt me. And um, when I had that story, I knew. I want this fucking told. I want to tell this story and I don't want to go through the process of like going to TV executives and trying to sort of like talk them into it and have them go, Hmm, can you, you know, can you work in like a talking koala and then maybe we'll talk. And it's like, I want to make this thing happen. And in, if you want to sort of make your own TV show happen, you can, I guess, kind of do it with your iPhone. You'll have kind of, you know, there are certain limits maybe on production quality, but especially for like, you know, a period piece like that. It's not really an option. Or you can find talented artists and surround yourself by talented creative people. And you can actually make this thing exist for not all that much money. Mm -hmm. And I decided that's what I was going to do. So I am 100% consider myself a guest in the comic world. You know, I'm just sort of trying to be a polite guest and learn as much as I can and be as respectful as I can in in this world. Um, and, uh, and I understand that, or I've come to understand that things often sort of are trying to go the other way that a lot of people who are in comics are hoping to get a TV Mm -hmm. job and, uh, and I don't blame them. And so it's like, well, what the fuck are you doing? You're, you're doing it backwards, you know, but it's just because this story is one that I'm super passionate about. And I really love how it turned out. And you can um, follow us on SheKillsComic.com. That's SheKillsComic.com. We're going to start rolling them out in April online. And there will be one a month all the way until summer of 2021. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, is it like, I know Comixology, there's other online services. Uh-huh. Is, are you going distributing it through that? Or just yeah, so I actually just uh, submitted them to Comixology mm-hmm. uh, for approval this past weekend, okay. the, the first three issues. Um, 
The only problem is I want to make them available for free. And Comixology, for gotcha. whatever reason, when I was uploading them, wouldn't let me offer it for any less than 99 cents per issue. Oh, I see. So, and I don't know what the rule is. I don't know if Comixology is going to be like, no, you can't do that. But at this, as, as I'm sitting here right this very second, I'm like, all right, maybe just, you know, put them on Comixology for people who are like, no, I want to, I, you know, I'm comfortable with Comixology right. and I'm willing to go ahead and pay the 99 cents per issue. Right. And at the same time, just offer them for free on my own website sure. if people are like, okay, I'll roll the dice that this Patrick Megan guy isn't like a front for, you know, Russian, uh, <laughs> you know, right. uh, identity harvesting Trojan mafia or something. Yeah. So um, so uh, you can flip the coin, readers, and decide just how lucky you're feeling. But uh, either way, you'll be able to uh, get them on uh, SheKillsComic.com or be directed, I'm sure. Yeah, I think the good thing about Comixology is also that it's, you know, a big comic search engine. Yeah. And if you get sales, they'll probably promote your book. Right. You may be able to, I don't know how it works on the distribution side. I don't, you may be able to offer, oh, it's 99 cents, but you get a 99 cent discount or something like uh, that with this code or something like that. Or, interesting. You know, just to get them to promote your book kind of yeah. thing or some, I don't know. We're it's still it's trying to figure this out. Like yeah. I said, this is all kind of a new world to me. Uh -huh. Like up until very recently, I've just right. sort of been focused on getting the story out sort of the way I want it out. And I've got this awesome uh, artist named Gabo who has been drawing this with me for the past like a year and a half at mm -hmm. this point. And we've just been building up issues, building up issues. We've got nine in wow. the can already. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, because the thing is, is because I wanted to roll them out in sequence right. like without breaks i didn't want to be like oh did you did you like that issue okay yeah. good well in about three and a half months there will be another you right. know i wanted to be able to just go boom 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 here they are are you so, a comic book fan yourself um so when i was a kid like i subscribed to daredevil um i think that may have been my only subscription and then there were other comics that i would get like Punisher and whatever, because I was like, oh, this is going to be valuable. And, right. and I don't know why I decided that was going to be a sound investment strategy. But I don't, like at this point, like I will sometimes kind of fall into sure. a, a story. So like there was this uh, graphic novel called Baskets that I read that right. was, no, no, was it Baskets? Blankets. Okay. Blankets. was super good. Um, I actually liked Stumptown. Like that was good. But, um, you know, when I uh, was writing what I was writing, because it you know is based in historical fact, like I was like, okay, I want to see who else out there is doing historical comics, you know. And I would go on Comicsology mm -hmm. and I would look, you know, for uh, like historical comics. And there were so many uh, comics that were like, okay, um, it's uh, these are French uh, legions and they are marching into Russia in World War One, and they march into like this very small town that appears deserted, but it's full of zombies. Right, and we're right. like, okay, all right, well, that's not quite what I'm looking for. And we're like, okay, here's this um, cowboy who like goes into this Western town and it's like, something's weird about this Western town. Turns out it's full of zombies. Right, and we're like, right, right. all right, apparently every, every twist in a historical thing is, but they're zombies. Right. And I'm like, all right, well, it's great. God love them. It's one quite what I So saying. issue 10 is when the zombies come in? It's going to be pretty fucking great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they just, they only have a taste for Indian flesh. Right. And they just chow down. Well, and they get a lot of it because one out of every three people dying, there you go. That's right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you didn't explain why they were all dying. So there you go. Now you got that, is, that is the big sort of question. <laughs> yeah. I just ruined it. Sorry. No, I say it's no, fine. No spoilers no, before. No, it's all good. Um, are you going to have a hard copy of this at any point like i don't know we'll see i you know i if nothing else i'm gonna have one made just for me yeah you know? <laughs> i've invested enough of myself in it that i'm like fuck it i want this thing i want to put it on my shelf but uh as far as like whether or not i make something like commercially available in that yeah. way i have to see if it gets an audience you know i hope yeah. it does but we'll see you know maybe there's a lot of shit on the internet you know i the, the whole internet is not going to stop and go oh look at that Right. That guy has a comic. Like, uh, people have comics all the time. Like, I get that. I recognize that. But um, we'll see. If 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 it gets some viewers, then uh, 
then maybe we'll move in that direction. Right. Now, I know a number of TV writers who actually still work in both worlds. Oh, yeah? Yeah, either they started in comics and moved to TV, or they worked in TV and they started writing comics because they love comics. Yeah. So it's definitely interesting. Yeah. There's this comic writer named Joshua Hale Filecoff, yeah. who um, he was kind enough, actually, to help me get my start. He's in that. Yeah, he's uh, awesome. And he I know he straddles both worlds. Right. and. He was one of the comic ones, started in the comic Started in the comic yeah. ones and, and does TV writing yeah. now, but I think probably does comics still too. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, he was very kind to sit down with me um, uh, for breakfast like two or three years ago at this point and uh, answer all my questions and um, uh, and uh, help hook me up with the editor that I've been working with for mm-hmm. all this time. So I owe him quite a lot. Um, even though he ruined uh, one of the books that I was really enjoying at the time. Because when we sat down, I happened to have a copy of Stephen King's The Stand there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was a super thick book. And I was enjoying it. And I was just reading it and waiting for him. And then Joshua shows up and he's like, oh, hey. And he looks at the book. He's like, oh, cocaine's a hell of a drug. And I'm like, what? And he said, oh, yeah, no, everybody knows this. Like Stephen King just wrote that in the middle of just coke bender has no <laughs> recollection of writing any of it right. and i'm like oh darn i was enjoying this book <laughs> and now i feel like i'm an idiot for liking it but anyway so fuck you josh hale <laughs> so i love you and also fuck you yeah. um okay uh we're running a little short on time for the podcast okay any of you last question but it's an important question that i think everyone listening really wants to know uh what does seth mcfarlane actually smell like in my head i'm thinking sandalwood and expensive uh, scotch uh, but you know you he think. smells so great <laughs> i want to say sort of like a brown sugar oh wow yeah there's definitely a sweetness to it okay but it's kind of an underlying musk that you, you can't quite put your finger on sure yeah yeah no if you get the chance to smell seth mcfarland you should and he'll really like that he'll really appreciate you doing it okay yeah yeah take a big big whiff yeah no, you know what? He's just waiting. He's just waiting to be smelled. <laughs> and uh, and uh, but don't tell him that Patrick Megan said to no, smell yeah. him. Yeah, no, you yeah. can blame me, Kevin. Yeah, is, on the Subscribers per- podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for coming on, Patrick. It's been awesome chatting. Um, yeah. It's been hopefully, lovely. you won't be arrested again. Uh, I hope that soon. too. Yeah. Um, check out Patrick's Twitter, and it's at patsweetpat. Correct. Uh, do you have any other social media besides shekillscomic.com? Nope. Uh, um, so, okay, great. So be sure to check out SheKillsComic.com. SheKillsComic.com and at PatSweetPat. Follow that. Um, and as always, thank you guys for listening. Uh, we make this podcast for you, so we do appreciate you spending the time with us as well. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. And have a great one and keep writing. Keep writing.